This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Just a note before we start, this season of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day was recorded remotely under lockdown. Health, wellness and maintenance of mind are so important right now. Personally, doing a bit of yoga every Saturday morning has made me feel more chilled than I do the rest of the week. But I found that what you wear can really make a difference to getting you into that headspace. And the brand that always gets me there is Sweaty Betty. I first discovered them at university when a friend of mine actually called me Sweaty Betty. Because when I work out, I do actually sweat. I don't glow. And I fell in love with the brand because it is so long lasting and durable. The quality of their product makes me feel empowered and strong. And the brand itself is all about love of movement, but it doesn't take itself too seriously. And Sweaty Betty is a big believer in balance, which is something we all need in current times. I would love for you to try Sweaty Betty and to have the same experience as me. So for a limited time, you can use the code how to fail, or one word, for 15% off. I highly recommend their power leggings, which, when I'm allowed out of the house, is what I wear for spinning because they are so hardworking and they give you a second skin feeling and a high stretch. And they come in dozens of different prints and colorways. So thank you so, so much to Sweaty Betty for sponsoring this podcast and for making such great clothes. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Scarlett Moffat is an accidental famous person. In her early 20s, she was working as a checkout operator in Asda in her hometown of Bishop Auckland when a friend told her about a new television program called Gogglebox. She thought she might as well try out for it because, as she recalled thinking at the time, it's 50 quid and a free takeaway. What's the worst that could happen? Scarlett became a breakout star with her hilarious one-liners and no-nonsense put-downs. Her ascent was swift. Two years later, she won 2016's I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. And she went on to present on Anton Deck's Saturday Night Takeaway. Her authenticity on screen and her honesty about her flaws brought her love and criticism in equal measure. She recently revealed she had once called the Samaritans after online trolls sent her abusive messages about everything from her weight to her teeth. Before I went on Gogglebox, I could never have imagined how hard it is for women in the public eye, she said. I thought celebrities lived in a different world. But one of Scarlett's undoubted qualities is her resilience. She now hosts the official podcast for RuPaul's Drag Race UK, has over 2 million followers on Instagram, and is widely acknowledged to be one of the nicest, most down-to-earth people you could ever hope to encounter. She wrote me the loveliest email about appearing on How to Fail, including not three, but six failures I could choose from. And if that's not a mark of true generosity, then I don't know what is. 
Scarlett Moffat. Welcome to How to Fail. Oh, thank you for that. Oh my God. Do you know what? Because I am a massive <laughs> fan, I feel like I've imagined what my introduction would be. <laughs> and that was that was lovely. Thank you. Was it okay? Did it live up to expectation? It really did. Thank you. I should have oh. said that as my ringtone now. <laughs> 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 I loved that you referred in a recent interview to your TV career as being like going to the university of television. <laughs> is, yeah. is, that how it, is that how it feels? Yeah, because I feel like without even realising when I was on Gogglebox, I was constantly critiquing the TV and realising yeah. like sort of what I liked, what I didn't like. And yeah, it, did, it felt like in such a short space of time, I just was sort of like doing everything. So I was sort of doing like location filming and filming in my house. Then I was doing shiny jazz hand studio floor filming. And it did feel like, wow, this is crazy. (laughs) I know you don't live with your parents, Mark and Betty anymore, but do you still as a family gather around to watch TV? Oh, we are like the Geordie Von Trapps. (laughs) <laughs> it is ridiculous how much time we spend. That's like a massive thing for me because for some reason it's seen as like uncool to spend time with your parents, but they're the people that always have your back. Like my mom is the funniest, most sarcastic person I know. So they're just the people that I like to spend all my time with really. And did you imagine that Gogglebox would be the launching pad for your career in this way or was it a complete surprise because it was sort of a favor to a friend it wasn't like I ever set out to sort of be on this fame bus so to speak it still doesn't feel real and now I just feel like that tiny opportunity that I said yes to has just completely catapulted my life into a different place to where I know that it would have been and are you grateful for it or are there times when you wish that it hadn't happened do you know what every day and I think even when I've had bad days which some days I feel like not getting out of bed as well I just think look at what you've done and I do feel grateful every day and I sort of have a little bit of imposter syndrome sometimes I'm like when is this all going to end I'm going to get found out soon they're going to realize I'm not a proper tv presenter and I've got no actual skills. But then equally, I'm like, I just have fun. I'm so happy to be doing the work that I'm doing. And I get really excited because I still live up north. I live just in a little village near Durham. And I I get on the train to London and I feel a bit like Miley Cyrus, you know, when she's Hannah Montana. Like (laughs) she's got the best of both worlds. When I'm up north, I'm sort of in me wellies, walking my dog up the fields. And then I go down London and I'm in studios and I get to go to premieres and stuff. It's really cool. It's good. (laughs) Is it important for you to still live up north to keep your feet on the ground, to use a massive cliche, but uh, but how, how important is that just from a mental health perspective? Yeah, I feel it's a time to just have a break. When I lived in London, although it is such an amazing, amazing city and my dad calls it the centre of the universe, even though you're surrounded by a lot of people, I did feel quite lonely. I sort of felt like I didn't quite fit in. I think because it is quite showbiz and everybody's very career oriented and I sort of am not like that. I know that's strange because of the job that I've got, but I just wing life really. So (laughs) it's nice to be able to come home and just pop around my friend's house. Most of them finish work at half five, so we get to go for tea whenever we want. When I lived in London, I used to say to my friends, oh, should we go out for food? And they'd be like, yeah, yeah. And then they'd get the calendars out and be like, oh, I'm free <laughs> next Wednesday or I'm free a week on Tuesday. And I'd be like, oh, no, I mean, now. <laughs> <laughs> one of the failures that you sent me, it was your failure at your maths GCSE. But you said yes. that that failure actually led you onto Gogglebox. So tell us how that happened. Yeah, so I was quite academic at school. I got good grades. I sort of, again, winged life. My mum was like, you need to stay in and actually study. And I did. I've just got a really good memory. I feel like I look at something once and then I'm like, oh, I've remembered that. But maths, you can't really wing maths. You've got to actually know how to add up and do fractions and all of that. 
So I did it twice at secondary school, my maths GCSEs, failed miserably. But I knew I wanted to go to university, so I had to retake it at college. And there was only six of us in the class. One of those people was Tommy Turnbull, which I know is a fantastic name. Best name ever. <laughs> ever. It's like something out of like a Disney book. But yeah, yeah. It's the circus ringmaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And welcome, Tommy Turnbull. Yay. Yeah. And we got to become friends Then weirdly lost contact at uni like everybody does. And I went on a night out in Darlington and bumped into Tommy and I was like, oh, how's your maths going? We just made some Pythagoras jokes and stuff. <laughs> and then like was happy that we both got into university. And he said, oh, I'm a researcher now. And I was like, oh, what are you researching? Thinking he was a detective or something. <laughs> but that's like a TV term, which I didn't realise. And he said, oh, I'm uh, trying to find and cast people for this show called Gogglebox. I went, oh, what's that? He said, you watch the telly? And I went, yeah. And he went, no, no, that's it. You just watch the telly. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, they'll make programs about absolutely anything now. That sounds shite. I literally said, that sounds so shite. And then Tommy was like, you know quite a lot of people. Like, do you know any families that will do it? So I rang so many people. And no one wanted to do it. And Tommy was like, will you and your mom and dad just do it? Because it's just to make it look like I'm doing my job properly. And then wow. before you know it, the camera crew was there. They showed us like photos of celebrities and we had to speak about them. Me and my dad got into an argument because I thought David Cameron was Piers Morgan. Okay. I got <laughs> really confused with the pictures. I don't know why, because they don't really look that similar. But <laughs> I was going off on a tangent. And then, yeah, the next day, Gogglebox called Studio Lambert and were like, we'd really like you on the show. And it was my dad that was like, oh, what's the worst that could happen? £50 and a free takeaway. And I was like, yeah, you're right, actually. It'll be fun, won't it? And that's the beginning, really. And when you were doing Gogglebox, were you still working at Asda during the days? Oh, what job did I have then? I think, actually, I was working at the three-star. You know the mobile phone yes. shop? which was inside a super drug. I think that was the job that I had then. And then maybe I went back to Asda. I've had that many jobs. <laughs> That's actually also one of your, one of your yeah. six ladies. It's, it's all a blur. But yeah, I had a nine to five job. And when I knew I was going to go into the jungle and I'm a celebrity, I actually was working in an office. My name was sort of in speculation in the newspapers. Uh, people coming up to me going, Scarlett, are you going in the jungle like it says in the sun that you're going in the jungle I was like what well no I'm sat here yeah of course I'm not I'm processing all of this data here. yeah I'm not going in the jungle and all the time I knew for about eight months that I was going in it was that's it was. so surreal that <laughs> yeah. reminds me of the amazing actress Vicky McClure who's been on this podcast and she yeah. said that when she was in Shane Meadows's This Is England which is what made her super famous she had a day job back home in Nottingham as I think it was like a fire warden safety lecturer. <laughs> and um, <laughs> she would have people recognize her because I think what lots of people don't realize is that you can't make a living being yeah. a celebrity from day one, can you? We did Gogglebox. I think I did it for three and a half years. And it was just for fun. Like it was sort of a side thing. Like we all still needed to go to work and everything for it. <laughs> yeah. And you've described yourself a couple of times now as someone who wings life. So did you ever have a clear career plan or was it a lot more like I will just take whatever job comes along? Well, I went to university to become a primary school teacher. And although I do like kids, <laughs> not that I much. <laughs> I realised quite quickly 30 of them every day is quite difficult. Yeah. <laughs> Hats off to teachers because even just planning lessons is so time consuming. So that was the plan, to be honest with you. The plan was always to be a primary school teacher. It's just so difficult to get jobs as well, especially at the time there was like a recession on, I live up north. So it was quite difficult to get a job. So at that point, I was sort of just taking any job I could to make ends meet, really. I think when I went in the jungle, I was finally out of my overdraft. Right. Because <laughs> I just was living in my overdraft since I started university, really. I want to get on to I'm a Celebrity, but tell us, because it is one of your failures, about all the jobs that you had in your 
from the age of 14 to 21 you said yeah my dad's always told us that you know you only get out of life what you put in so always had jobs it's just I found them really difficult to keep hold of I just get really bored my first job was putting the sweets in pick and mix bags which is difficult when you're not allowed to eat the sweets so difficult <laughs> imagine being 14 and just being surrounded by cola bottles and fizzy strawberries knowing <laughs> that you can't touch any of them it was like torture <laughs> then I worked in retail I worked in Topshop, Burton's, Oasis I worked on the checkout at Asda which was my favorite job I can't explain how fun stressful but what a fun job you got to meet so many lovely people it was nice because there was a couple of oldies the little uh, silver foxes that would come in and sometimes you'd be the only person that they would see during the week Mm. so it was really nice because I'd make a massive effort to I'd sometimes get in trouble for that actually because I'd talk for quite a long time to people and they'd be like come on Scarlett hurry up I worked as a shop girl, I've worked behind bars, handing out flyers. I was a qualitative analysis <laughs> in university. I don't even know what that is, but fine. It's just data. It's just which weirdly, I'm not very good at math. So I don't know how I winged that job. <laughs> in fact, I do. I got my friend Shan to actually write my CV for me. So that's probably why. <laughs> phone shops. But I did actually the phone shop one is funny because I mean, I was only 22 at the time. So this is why I'm blaming my young age on this story. But I actually quit dressed as a builder. So my... (laughs) Wait, explain that again. So my friend, it was her 21st birthday, and she wanted to go to York, us all dressed as builders, like hard hats, high vis. And then they just wouldn't let me have the day off. And I was like, please, it's my friend's 21st. She's never going to get this birthday again. And I just decided to go and I rocked up dressed as a builder. And I was like, I'm really sorry, but if you're not going to let me have it off, I'm going to have to quit. And they were like, (laughs) right, well, I guess you're done. And I was like, I guess I am. And then I just walked out with my hives on. Was it a good birthday? Yeah, it was worth it, to be fair. Great. Um, And you you also did three seasons abroad in Magaluf. What did that entail? Yeah, that was an eye opener. (laughs) I feel like I'm from a little village and my friend lived over there she actually was an au pair and she's like come over it's really nice she lived in Parmanova so I stayed with her and then it was a bit wild it was a bit wild I feel like even though I went to university I was still quite sheltered I think because I went to York University it wasn't the wildest of places but people just leave their inhibitions at home when they go on holiday it's like rules don't apply so were you some kind of tour rep or just sold shots literally and sometimes we even sold shots in places that didn't even have a bar so me and my friend Ali would go to the local shop and we would buy they were sort of shots in test tubes and we'd just go (laughs) we'd just go around hotels and hand out the test tube shots that's amazing (laughs) so because what you describe it as a failure but actually the way that you're talking about it, what strikes me is how entrepreneurial you are. The- I'm like Alan Sugar. I was like the Alan Sugar <laughs> of Magalon. 100%. <laughs> but also the fact that you have grafted all of your life and you have found work when potentially that was quite difficult and you're not proud about the kind of work that you do. Is it very important for you, the value of work? Yeah, since I can remember my mum and dad have just like worked they left the house early I'd go to my nanny's to take me to school at half seven in the morning and then they'd come back at six on a night and I just think it does give you a real sense of achievement like being 14 and I know it was only three pound fifty at the end it was only an hour's work but that first ever three pound fifty that was put in my hand and I was like no one can tell me what to spend this money on this is my money I earned it. That's just a lovely feeling. And I feel like that's something that's just stayed with us. And I enjoy that. It's not even about the amount that you're in. I think it's just that sense of achievement, really. And do you think that you're someone... So I often think, okay, if everything went wrong for me and I lost everything and I lost my work, what would I do? And I sort of draw up strategies for the worst case scenario. (laughs) And I feel like, maybe I'm kidding myself, but I feel like I'm someone who could attempt at least to try and find some kind of work. Like I don't mind what I do really. Do you think you're that kind of person as well? That you would find a way through? 
Yeah, I just think there was a thing recently in the paper. I think it was a woman that worked on Emmerdale. And yes. she was sort of between jobs. And then she got a job working as a security guard at B&M. And she was getting grief over it. And I was like, hang on, she's going to work. You can never, ever put someone down for going to work. Whatever that job is, the adding to society, the helping, someone has to do all of the jobs. So yeah, mm. I, I wouldn't really be bothered, really. I'd find the fun in whatever. I find it fascinating that you said there that when you went on I'm a Celebrity, you finally cleared your overdraft. And yeah. I know that part of the appeal of I'm a Celebrity for the contestants is not, not just eating kangaroo testicles, but it is the fee that you get. Do you think like having experience of, you know, being paid £3.50, working as a checkout operator in Asda, that the money in television and in celebrity is kind of mad and out of whack? Yeah, I don't even think like on the scale of sort of what people get paid on I'm a Celebrity, I definitely wasn't up there on the sort of the pay scale, but I used the money to just pay my mum and dad's mortgage off because I was like, how else are you ever going to get that amount of money? It is crazy. And I think the current sort of situation that we're in now, you realise sort of how ridiculous certain jobs are paid when there's people risking their lives like my boyfriend's a police officer I've got friends who are nurses and doctors and it is insane just tell me a bit about I'm a Celebrity because I adored you on I'm a Celebrity it's actually the last full series that I watched and I watched it because of you and I was so thrilled that you won because you were so authentic and so yourself and just a star but what was it like (laughs) I mean I really enjoyed it. I think I'm the only person. I was talking to Deck about this and he's like, I'm sure that you are the only person that enjoyed all of it. I think because I was just so grateful to be there. And when people were mourning, I was like, come on, man. Like, how many people would want to be in this position? And I just sort of treated it like a detox spa. You know, you're living off natural food. You're sleeping under the stars. Yeah, you've got a pop a kangaroo bollock in your mouth every now and then but I mean there is actually worse things to be fair but I think for me I just was really happy to be there and sat with people like Larry Lamb and hearing his stories and having Carol Vorderman wash me hair I just embraced every minute really. Are you still friends with some of your co-stars? Yes, yeah, so do you know what? We are actually all friends. So we still have a WhatsApp group called the Jungle Chat. And yeah, we try and go to each other's events. So like Safe Jordan's got a diversity tour coming up. We'll all try and go and watch him or Sam when she's doing all of her sports chat. We try and do things. So it is nice. And when Larry was back on Gavin and Stacey, we were all chatting about that. So it's nice. Yeah, we all support each other, which is good. Do you ever get starstruck, Scarlett? Do you know what I used to? I feel like I used to piss me knickers really. <laughs> Sometimes I'd be like, oh my God. I think the time where I really freaked out was when Tom Hardy came up to me and said, oh, Scarlett, can I have a photo? And I went, shut up. <laughs> yeah, and I went, what? Really loud. And he was like, can I have a photo? And I went, yeah, do you want me to take a photo of you? Someone? And he was like, no, of you and he was like me and Charlotte watched you in the jungle and we loved you on Gogglebox and I was like what you watch telly I think I was just shocked that Tom Hardy watched the TV and then it was it Alan Carr's chatty man and his agent came in and said oh Tom would like your number he said like you're really nice and him and Charlotte would like you to come round and play chess or play board games or go for food one time I was play like chess that was the invitation. Okay, yeah. random, but fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's with Tom Hardy and Charlotte. So I was like, yeah, whatever. Tiddly winks, I'm up for whatever. <laughs> and so I passed my number on and he texts me like, oh, this is Tom's number. And I was like, oh my God. I then took a photo of my outfit because my mum asked me to send a photo of an outfit. And I accidentally sent it to Tom <laughs> when he was in the next room. And I was, I literally started crying. Like, no, I was so mortified. I was like, I've ruined it. I've ruined my chance of becoming friends with him. I started crying. 
And he then sent a photo back doing the exact same pose as me in the mirror saying, whoops, was meant to send that to my mum too. I was like, oh, yes, he's, he's saved my embarrassment. So, But no, I feel like now I was so lucky doing Ant and Dex Saturday Night Takeaway. I got to meet so many amazing people. And you slowly realise that actually everyone is just human. Mm. you can still admire people and really enjoy the work that they do and admire the talent but yeah I think I've learned now that everyone's just just a person did you ever go around to Tom Hardy's house for chess well we actually weirdly went to Disneyland Paris so him and Charlotte and two little ones and me my dad my little sister and my cousin and yeah they did like Jedi training together and stuff that's the sweetest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Crazy, but fun. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, <laughs> okay, we'll come back to present day, but I just want to take you back in time because one of your failures and the one that we're going to talk about now is that you were in an accident when you were 11. And yes. I know that it had a long lasting impact on your life. So tell us what happened. Yes. Yeah, so... My mum was saying that she was going to my auntie's house. And to be honest, I learned how to ride a bike quite late in life. I was always a little bit scared of bikes. So I feel like inside me was like, don't get on a bike. It's Mm. like I always knew. And I was 11 and I said, oh, can I come round and I'll bring my bike? And mum was like, oh, don't bring the bike. She even told me not to bring it. And I was like, you know, a teenager. I was like, I know better. I'll bring my bike. And as I was riding round, there was a boy racer in a car swerved round the corner really fast and bumped the back of my bike. And I just literally went flying off my bike. Do you know, I didn't actually have a helmet on. So I feel so lucky that all that happened is I sort of split my chin open and I smashed all my front teeth and they were my adult teeth. I have never felt pain. Like it literally felt like my teeth had went through my gums. And I remember just running in my auntie's house and just, I had my favourite Tammy girl top on and it was just covered in blood and my mum was just screaming and my friends outside were picking shards of my teeth up, taking it to my mum, like, here's some of the teeth. And yeah, I got like an emergency dentist appointment. There wasn't really a lot they could do because I was so young and my gums were still like moving around and everything. They had to take the nerve out of my teeth which meant that I had my front teeth were black and there was literally nothing they could do about it because I couldn't have nerves in my teeth. So you can imagine, I I wasn't the prettiest of kids anyway. I mean, I had a proper mono brow. I could eat an apple through a letterbox anyway with my teeth and then going into school and having these little black teeth and dentistry wasn't what it was back the same as now. So when I did eventually get caps, I sort of looked like I had polystyrene teeth. I mean, I can laugh about it now, but it is one of those sad times because I look back now and things like, I mean, I never smiled. So I have no photos with my great grandma, Frida, who sadly passed away. I have no photos with her smiling, which really upsets me now because I think, oh, it's so vain to think even at 11, I was so self-conscious because I got called about, but I've never been on a bike since. I still to this day have failed to get back on a bike. It fills me with massive dread. I feel like I've probably got some like PTSD around it, but yeah, I just can't get back on one. Is that why you chose it as a failure? Because you wish that you hadn't cared as much? Although it's such a hard age though, not to care because it is the age when you're 11, it is the age when people are just seeking ways to differentiate themselves and also seeking a way to like be comfortable in a tribe of people who look the same as you so it's a nightmare yeah and shortly after that honestly I had sort of a bit of bad luck really because I got Bell's palsy they think it was probably off the trauma of that so it's sort of where the half of your face doesn't move it's not like having a stroke but it sort of has the visual effects of having a stroke which is why now my face isn't like perfectly symmetrical but I'm not bothered about it now but at the time it was so horrific I I felt like I didn't really play out anymore and and I sort of just become a bit of a recluse really Jacqueline Wilson the author soon became my best friend I felt like 
Tracy Baker and the illustrated mum were were like my actual friends. <laughs> I know that sounds sad, but books were like a massive help for me as a teen. But I think what I learned from sort of never getting back on a bike again was it's sort of all right to fail. <laughs> Sometimes you just fail at stuff and you've just got to accept it. Like I think there's so much pressure in I could have easily just got back on my bike literally not even <laughs> metaphorically literally could have just got back on my bike and rode off into the sunset but I just didn't but I've done plenty of things that I'm proud of since so I don't worry about it anymore. Do you think that those years of feeling like you didn't want to go out and feeling like a bit of a recluse taught you a lot about compassion because you were a very compassionate person and I wonder if that's because you felt like a bit of an outsider. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I did get bullied because of it. And my dad always said to me, bullies are like sandpaper. The more they wear you down, the more polished you become. And I think that's really true. And I just would never want anybody to feel how I felt. And I think that's maybe why not I'm not a comedian, but I try and make people laugh. Because I think laughter is the best medicine. And I think if you can make people laugh and have a giggle, you'll sort of forget about your worries, really. So I think that whole time did really mold me into the person I've become now. And also, I mean, the only people I lived with at the time, because my little sister wasn't born till I was 16, was my mum and dad. So they did become my best friends and still are. And I think that's why we have such a good relationship and people can see that through things like, goggle box and when we did the British tribe next on things mm. you talk there about humor and you are exceptionally funny but oh, there is that, there is that old saying like if I don't laugh I'll cry and yeah. I wonder if you think that you developed humor as a kind of defense mechanism because, oh massively yeah oh great yeah. <laughs> carry on yeah no <laughs> massively I mean at 11 I started watching things like Bottom, The Young Ones, Norman Wisdom, Will Hear. So I feel like I've always been this old lady trapped in a young person's body. If I was calling myself, then no one else could really hurt us. Like if someone was to say, oh, look at the state of your eyebrows, I'd be like, God, I know I'd give Helga Pataki a run for her money. No one can say anything to that. No one can have a comeback for that because there's nothing else to say. Same as when my little sister started secondary school. I said, oh, look, if anyone starts calling me, just join in. Like, don't feel like you have to defend us because that was my biggest fear that she would get picked on. And especially because of like my job and things, I was like, I hope people aren't nasty to her because of me. Day one, it happened and it never happened again because some kids said to her, "Um, oh, your sister's stupid, da, da, da. And Ava just went, God, you think, you know, you want to try living with her. She's a nightmare. Uh-huh. <laughs> like no one said anything after that because there's nothing to say really. So yeah, humor is a good defense mechanism. And this is a very, very weighted question for all women, but particularly women in the public eye. How do you feel about the way that you look now? Having grown out of that phase of awkwardness, having got the caps on your teeth and now living in a world where you are kind of publicly recognized how do you feel about it I feel like over the past I would only say six months I feel like I own my body again I know that sounds really bizarre but I just sort of felt a little bit like I was always on the outside looking in I felt like I didn't really own me anymore because everything's publicized and everyone has an opinion on how I look. I felt like I was getting my hair done for other people. I was really picking out outfits thinking, right, will this get slated? Will people call me for this? Have I got too much on show? Have I got too little? I'd really overthink things constantly. And I sort of just kept wearing bland things all the time and stopped wearing fake tan and stuff because I just thought, don't do anything to sort of get attention about the way that I look. Whereas now I just think that's so stupid. I am who I am. If I want to wear eyelashes that are so heavy, I have to tip my head back to open my eyes, then I can. If I'm like a size 16, I know that like in today's standards, that's not the norm, so to speak. And I just think, well, I'm really happy. What I see when I look in the mirror, I like and I go to the gym and I work out and everything. But equally, I also 
like pizza. So I just don't judge myself as much anymore. And I don't even think just for sort of people who are bigger. I just think it's just hard being a woman, whoever and whatever shape or size you are, because I just feel like I wish the papers would just come out and say, this is the perfect size. You will not get called any names or trolled if you were this size. But it frustrates me because a lot of the time it's women writing this stuff. And it's like, no, let's big each other up. Let's not put each other down because it gives everyone else an excuse to. Well, I think you're absolutely gorgeous. And I think it's very interesting that you use that phrase that you feel like you own your own body again. And I totally get it because women in the public eye have their bodies owned by comments made by other people. There's such an objectification that it almost feels sometimes that the woman herself exists separately from her physical body. And I know that you have been on a long, long journey with this, but how yeah. have you got to the stage of acceptance? What was it that made a difference for you? I honestly think actually it is my little sister because my little sister's 13 now. Sorry if I cry at this, I will really try not to. But a few months ago, I went into a room. I was like, oh, what are you doing? And she was looking at herself and she went, oh, I have hip dips. And I was like, what the hell are hip dips? And she said, oh, it's where your hips go out further than your legs. My little sister is so slim. She's really slim. And I just thought, oh, my God, I can show her that I'm bothered by what people think because it really, really upset us. And I just thought, well, that's probably what my mum feels when I'm pulling myself to bits as well. And I just thought, that's awful. I don't want my little sister to feel like that. I don't want my mum to feel like that. And so I started giving myself compliments every day, which I did feel a bit of a wanker doing it. Like I'd wake up and I'd be like, oh, your legs look nice today, Scarlett. And I'd even laugh. But the more I did it, I just felt really better about myself. And even now I'll do stupid things like, I'll put a TikTok dance on and I'm having such a laugh doing it. And people will comment saying like, oh, you've piled weight on, you look fat. And I'm like, if that's what you're getting from watching that, you need to find a hobby or just hug someone. Because I actually feel sorry for people that feel like they have to put others down. Now I've started, if I get a troll on Instagram, I've actually started inboxing people, giving them the number for the Samaritans and saying like, you know, everything's going to be all right. Because I think I have never been in a place where I felt the need to comment on another person's picture, slating the way that they look. So I can't even imagine what state of mind they are to do that, to think that that's sane. So yeah, I've started just sending people the number for Samaritans. Has anyone ever replied to you? Yeah, do you know what? Every person, and they've always apologised and said, you know, like, oh, I'm really sorry and like, I'm not happy. And a lot of them say they're not happy with themselves and that's why they do it. Because I I just say like, why are you doing this? Like, what are you gaining from calling me names? I'm aware that I'm not this, like, it's what like when people (laughs) comment saying, you've put weight on and I'll just comment back saying, I know. Like I buy my own clothes. Like I have to buy a size up now. Or like I have mirrors in my house. So I'm well aware. Like if you think that that's hurting me, it's not. And I think that's what I've done. I've sort of spun the comments around. So I used to see a comment saying like, you're really ugly. And I used to look at my face and be like, oh God, yeah, they're right. And then now I'm like, well, that's just your opinion. So now I just, I don't overthink anything anymore. And I do read comments because I, I sort of went off reading comments for a little bit, but then you miss the good things as well. So I've started reading the comments again too. You mentioned the Samaritans there. And I talked in the introduction about how you got to a point with all of this where you called the Samaritans yourself using a fake name. What got you to that point? Yeah, I just felt it was like a really sort of hard time where it didn't matter what I'd done, what I achieved, or if I did a show that I was really proud of, or, you know, just something that I was really proud of, it would just get spun into the way that I looked really. And I was just getting trolled so bad. And it got to the point where I didn't even want to go outside. I didn't want to do any work. So I was like, God, I'm just from this tiny village I just feel like the luckiest person that I've been given these opportunities and I think because no one sort of prepares you so when I was crown queen of the jungle I didn't realize at the time that that was the peak 
no one sort of warns you like the only way to go when you're at the top is to go down and I think uh rapidly felt that I was like oh okay so you don't just get good press all the time and you don't just get good comments all the time there is sort of a negative side to all of this and I think I just really let it get on top of us and I didn't want to tell my mom because I didn't want to upset her and it got to the point where I was like I just don't want to go outside what do I do like I sort of felt like I wanted to disappear but I didn't know how and so I just kept ringing the Samaritans and it really helped actually it's weird because it's speaking to a stranger so you feel like you can just offload and no one's judging you yeah it really really helped and then I actually got the courage to tell my mom and to seek professional help with speaking to a therapist and I do meditation now which is something I never thought I would do like I never ever thought that I would meditate I think because I just always assumed that it was for hippies but it's not it really really helps so if anyone does feel a little bit crazy especially during times like this meditation massively helps you just put a perspective on life and it just makes you see more clearly I read somewhere that when people go on Love Island now, you will quite often message them and say, I'm here for you if it all gets too much. Is that true? Yeah. I just feel like, especially with reality shows like Love Island, because it's a massive amount of fame, like it's crazy fame when they get out, everyone knows them. There's been stories in the paper of the past. And I just wish sort of I had someone when I came out of the jungle to say this is normal so I just felt like I could sort of do my bit by messaging them and then they knew that the help was there if they needed it and I was just like look here's my number if ever anything gets a bit much or you think is this the norm or what do I do then I'm a safe space you can say whatever to us. (laughs) Do you think there needs to be more support for people who go on reality tv after they come off? I feel like it really should happen before I feel like it would be nice to think that they were really sat down and someone explained to them this is how it could go because I think especially when you're younger you feel like once I'm on tv then my life's sorted but then no one sort of says when work slows down or you know if you're perceived in a bad way you know not everybody is perceived in the best light that of them or people you know struggle during stressful situations where they've been filmed constantly so I feel like yeah it would be good to say like these are all the positives but equally are you prepared mentally for if it goes wrong because then I feel like people would really sit down and think right is it worth it and I know that you knew Caroline Flack and I also was lucky enough to meet her and she was an absolutely lovely person and I was horrified by her death and I wondered how it had affected you and what you think if anything can be taken from that tragic loss yeah I messaged Caroline just keep checking saying like hope you're all right and things and weirdly now I I still even sort of send love heart emojis to her Mm. I know that now because of the current situation with the horrific corona virus sort of the be kind campaign has gone a little bit quiet but I would like to think that when life goes back to normality people really choose the words wisely and people don't just jump on a bandwagon I feel like social media allows people to voice opinions and I just think that's fine like we're all entitled to opinions but I think if it's a negative one and it really affects someone, you don't have to put it out there. I think if I have an opinion of a program and I think, oh, that's not very good, obviously on Gogglebox, I'd say, oh, that's not very good. But I wouldn't sit and go, oh, well, her eyes aren't very nice or she's a bit fat, like, because that's got nothing to do with anything. I think it's fine WhatsApping your friends and saying, like, oh, Scarlett's put a bit of beef on. Like, that's fine. But You don't feel the need to actually at that person on Instagram and say those things. Just keep them in your head or voice them with your friends and family. I think when you're getting it from all angles, if you're getting grief from the press and online and Twitter and social media and there's nowhere to go, it's just so sad that people feel like there's no escape. And I just really hope that people choose the words wisely and 
it's just all a bit kind. I just feel like life would be so much easier for us all if we were just a little bit kinder. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Your final failure is related to that, I think, and it's your failure to fit in. And you talk about how, as a child, you had lots of different phases. So tell us about the phases. All to the expense of my mum and dad, bless them, (laughs) going to work, using their hard earned money to change the person that I was. I think in the space of a year, I tried to put myself in the chav box because there was lots of popular kids who were sort of chavs we say up north. It was like this sort of cult of wearing Fred Perry and Timberland boots Mm -hmm. and going to raves, which I hated. (laughs) The boots were so heavy. And you had to dance around, (laughs) bopping away. It was so tiring. I hated the music. I just kept making excuses to go to the toilet all the time. I'd just sit on the toilet just to get away from the head-banging music. And then I realised that, yeah, I couldn't do that for much longer. So then I sort of went in the pop princess box. I got my mum to get me this really oversized fake fur coat that I wore with brown cowboy boots with a silver heel and it had (laughs) orange diamonds all over it. It was horrific. And I'd wear sort of spray-on jeans. They were that tight. I can't remember just lying on my bed trying to button them up. I think one time I actually just safety pinned them because they just would not fasten at all and listen to Aqua Barbie Girl (laughs) and Dr. Jones, things like that. Realised that wasn't me either. Then joined the emo crew, which was an interesting phase. And we would go into this wood place called The Barrier and uh, all just sit and tell sad stories and horror stories and wear a lot of eyeliner. And I just realised that I just wasn't born really to fit in with any particular crowd. And so I just sort of did my own thing. And it did mean that I was a bit of a loner for a while, like, I'd go metal detecting and I was really into conspiracy theory. So I'd tell people at school about aliens and Roswell and crop circles and stuff. And, you know, before you knew it, I actually had my own circle of friends. Mm. And Sarah, we've been friends since school now, since we were like 14 and I'm godmother to her little boy. And we live together at university. And yeah, we've been friends like, God, 17 years now which is nice. And I would never have become friends with it if I hadn't have just realised that I failed miserably to fit in and it's best just to be yourself. And how much has RuPaul's Drag Race reaffirmed that message for you that actually it's not about fitting in, as you say, it's about finding the truest version of yourself? As Ru would say, if you can't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love anybody else? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just love RuPaul's Drag Race. I feel like whoever you are you watch that and you just instantly feel part of something if you don't feel like you belong anywhere you watch that and you're like oh you realize that you don't have to belong in a particular type of box you can just be you and they're the things that make us unique and that actually people love the most because it would be boring if we were all the same I love everything that RuPaul's Drag Race stands for you can just be the weirdest best version of yourself and be unapologetic about it which I've started to be now it's just took a while it's just took 29 years <laughs> to be fair you're only 30 so I don't think it's taken yeah. you that long well well I'm not 30 till October so I suppose, oh sorry I'm so sorry right. just... you don't have to apologize you don't it's these lines on this forehead <laughs> no it's not at all and you just said 29 years there and I just totally ignored you because I'd read somewhere that you were 30 so what date in October Scarlett 17th of October I'm a, I'm a Libra and are you going to have a big party well hopefully it depends sort of what happens oh yeah because we're we're talking during lockdown so we're recording this remotely yeah (laughs) but all being well hopefully you'll have a big party yeah hopefully a huge one go on holiday somewhere even if it's butlins i don't mind just to be away (laughs) with my friends would be nice (laughs) go back to magaloof sell some testy (laughs) scarlett you've been so lovely about this podcast and i just wonder whether i could ask you quite a big question about failure which is what you think your failures have taught you oh that is a big one isn't it (laughs) i feel like just to be unapologetically myself 
I've just learned in life, you realise as you get older, again, that is very cliche, but you just care less. Like, I just really care less about what people think. And as long as you're kind, you don't have to worry about anything else. That's all that matters. As long as you know you're a kind person, then the rest just wing it. That is the best place I could possibly hope to end on. Scarlett Moffat, unapologetically yourself, you are a complete dream. I'm so, so grateful that you came on this podcast and spoke with such humour and insight into the human condition. And long may you reign. Thank you so, 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 so much. Oh, thank you so much. I can take this off my bucket list now. Thank you. Health, wellness and maintenance of mind are so important right now. Personally, doing a bit of yoga every Saturday morning has made me feel more chilled than I do the rest of the week. But I found that what you wear can really make a difference to getting you into that headspace. And the brand that always gets me there is Sweaty Betty. I first discovered them at university when a friend of mine actually called me Sweaty Betty. Because when I work out, I do actually sweat. I don't glow. And I fell in love with the brand because it is so long lasting and durable. The quality of their product makes me feel empowered and strong. And the brand itself is all about love of movement, but it doesn't take itself too seriously. And Sweaty Betty is a big believer in balance, which is something we all need in current times. I would love for you to try Sweaty Betty and to have the same experience as me. So for a limited time, you can use the code how to fail, or one word, for 15% off. I highly recommend their power leggings, which when I'm allowed out of the house is what I wear for spinning because they are so hardworking and they give you a second skin feeling and a high stretch. And they come in dozens of different prints and colorways. So thank you so, so much to Sweaty Betty for sponsoring this podcast and for making such great clothes. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>